Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We've been walking through the book of Proverbs, and chapters 1 through 9 consist of several poems that Solomon wrote. Each begins with the address, My Sons, and they illustrate important parental lessons by way of extended metaphor. Wisdom and folly are personified as different types of women at various stages of the son's life, a mother, an attractive maiden, and a spouse. And the interplay between the son and these three most important women illustrates well the blessings of walking in relationships with ladies of wisdom and the consequences of partnering with women folly. And then, though, in chapter 10, uh, extended metaphors are replaced by pithy statements. Unlike the first nine chapters, when you read the rest of Proverbs, it's nearly impossible what to anticipate next. The subject matter literally changes nearly every verse. And you may be wondering, couldn't Solomon, or at least the compilers of his extensive uh, collection, have arranged them better? Certainly a topical arrangement would have been more helpful to the reader. Why so many non sequiturs, and why are they arranged so randomly? Well, commentators suggest there's actually Uh, an apparent larger purpose to this uh, apparent randomness. See, the reality is life, at least as most of us live it, we have to deal with multiple issues every day, every hour. And we may wish it was more controllable and predictable, but it's not. And so the Proverbs come at us much like life comes at us. It just as it's lived. So we talk about work and sex, and we have to deal with parenting and money and sleep management and conflict. These issues just confront us one after the other. We learn as we go. Now, I mention this because those of you unfamiliar with the book of Proverbs, I want to give you a realistic understanding of how it's constructed. Now, that said, however, the pastors have decided that for these chapters, Proverbs 10 through 31, we are going to deal with them topically rather than chapterly or what looks like randomly. And so this morning, we're going to look at the topic of the role of parents and children within the family uh, and also the role of God within that. Uh, I've done some of the hard work for you. I I read through Proverbs, and I collected all the Proverbs that dealt with family and with parent-child relationships, and I'm looking for patterns and repetition and contrast and development and everything. And I've selected some that I think are are key to family matters. And we've printed them in in page 4, on page 4 of your bulletin, so you don't have to flip around your Bible. Uh, And this way, you can just follow along more easily. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God of wisdom, and we thank you that you reveal your wisdom to us. As parents, as children, we pray that you would give us hearts that can hear your word, and we pray that we would prove wise by listening well to it and applying it to our lives. Whatever our circumstance and situation, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my sermon is is Three's Company because I'm including the role of God as well as that of parents and children in family matters. And uh, so let's first jump in by talking about the role of God in family members. I'm going to read 
uh, a proverb and then comment on it. I'm not going to read all of them at once. That's just how we're going to work through it. So let's start out with Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord disciplines uh, or reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Right here off the bat, Solomon is speaking to his son, and he reminds his son, listen, son, you have another father, a heavenly one. And this heavenly father delights in you and loves you and knows you even better than I do. This is a perfectly, this is a perfect heavenly father. He sees all, he knows all. You can't get away with anything with him. And he is always at work in your life. He's always protecting you and providing for you. He is your good and perfect Father. Now, now what does this mean that Solomon reminds us of this? It means this. God never surrenders his parental rights. The picture Solomon paints is that God is constantly parenting us. He is our Heavenly Father. Verse 11 reminds us that we must all not despise the Lord's fatherly discipline or grow weary of His correction, but we must learn to submit to Him and trust Him, knowing that as our Heavenly Father, He disciplines us for good in perfect love and wisdom. Now, a few quick applications on this, right? First, you never outgrow being a child of God. You never get to a point where you don't need his daily provision and correction and protection and care. Kids, look around. Even the people here who are bald and have gray hair, right, they are still being disciplined by their heavenly father. You never outgrow it. Okay, second quick application. Parents, since you never outgrow being a child of God, you must recognize that part of God's parenting of you happens once you have children and you become a parent. And when you become a parent, all of the misguided assumptions you may have had are quite easily and often embarrassingly exposed. Peter J. O'Rourke captured it this way when he said, everyone knows how to raise children except the people who have them. Right? Before I was a parent, I remember uh, assuming all kinds of things about the parents who had the hysterical children in the cereal aisle at the grocery store until God blessed me with my own beautiful two-year-old who decided to make my life a misery when I walked the gauntlet of of the cereal aisle, right? I mean, it was just, it was very, very revealing, right? Consider, Consider this quote placed in the bulletin. I got this off of a humorous parenting blog. And what parent hasn't felt this way at some point? Looking at their child, they're thinking, you're making it difficult for me to be the type of parent I always imagined I would be, right? But parenting or parenthood, it's not just humbling. It can be scary. Uh, One comedian quipped, parenthood is the scariest hood you'll ever live in. Just last week, my daughter Kelly called me late at night. I won't say how late, but I had been asleep for a little while. I was in melatonin bliss. I was very relaxed, and my phone started buzzing, and I looked at it, and it's my daughter, Kelly. And in three nanoseconds, I imagined the worst possibility, and I'm like, what is she going to say when I pick up this phone? And I answer the phone, and the first thing she says is, Dad, don't worry, I'm fine. Now, she's a smart girl. (laughs) She knows her dad well. But then she followed up, but the police officer wants to know... (laughs) 
And she had been out with some friends, and I guess they did a late-night sheets run or something. And when they got back, they all kind of got out of the car and went into her apartment. And someone, they saw on a camera, had, had broken into the back of her car and was rooting around and, and left. And she couldn't find anything missing. And she's like, do I report this to the police? And I'm like, <laughs> You know, but in a minute, here I am a pastor, right? I'm telling other people, trust the Lord with your children, right? But in that nanosecond, you know, I am panicking. And uh, it revealing just how much uh, more I need to trust in the Lord and, and His sovereign goodness. So the Lord parents us as we parent our children. Thirdly, since God never gives up His parental rights, we must never forget that our children are first and foremost His children. They belong to Him primarily and to us secondarily. God's authority as a father exceeds yours. His rights uh, transcend your rights. He knows your children better than you do, and he loves them more. And uh, my parent, uh, my kids are probably learning that as well. You may uh, have had a small part in, in creating your children, but the Lord is the one who knit them together in the womb. Um, so, this reality has several implications. First, some parents, when, they, when they're blessed with children, they kind of, uh, their, their first goal becomes to, to sort of create a little mini-me. And uh, it goes beyond just dressing them to, to look like themselves or pushing their children extremely hard in areas of academics or athletics because they want their kids to excel in areas either they did or, or did not. But some parents attempt to create mini-me's, you know, around their, their politics and their, their personal philosophies. I, I remember one dad um, so valued individual freedom, he made it clear to everyone else that no one was to use the word no with his child. I thought he was joking, but he was serious. Uh, we were to redirect the child's attention, you know. Hey, you know, why don't you look over here? Uh, but we were never to say no, and you can imagine how that went. And it didn't take long for Junior to become a little tyrant. Uh, as Christian parents, though, we are called to reflect our Heavenly Father's values, His truth, not our opinion, is supreme. And if you faithfully represent God's priorities in your family in today's world, your kids will eventually look at you and ask, why is our family so weird? Why do we have to do things other kids don't have to do? And your answer to them is the same as Joshua's. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And our Heavenly Father does not give up His parental rights just because He places a child in your home. And I want to touch briefly on two more important uh, implications of this reality. And the first is the earliest and clearest implication to the sanctity of life. Our Heavenly Father values every child made in His image, no matter how young or how small. And they are His from conception. And the trauma of post-abortive parents that the trauma that they must work through is complicated, for not only have you terminated the life of your child, but of God's child. And if you have violated God's parental rights in this way, the first words I want to speak to you are words of mercy and grace. You remain God's and He sees you, and He loves you, even though this terrible thing has happened. And no one else may know, but he knows what you have been through. And if you turn to him, he will forgive you 
and heal you and walk with you. And we have a team of people here at this church that can help you and help, help you walk through surrendering your secret of abortion into his hand. Now, another application of God's fatherhood speaks to those who have unexpectedly lost children. There's no greater pain. Children should not die before their parents. Parents' hope and joy is to see their children live long and happy lives. But as my father-in-law, who lost his daughter, Kelly, our daughter's namesake, as he told me, he said, Kelly was first the Lord's, and she was one of God's greatest gifts to us, but he only entrusted us with her for three years when he decided to take her home. Now, it took a long time for him to get to that peaceful resolution. There was a lot of pain and anger. He didn't want to go to church. In fact, his wife went to church while he was golfing and didn't tell him about it because he was so angry with the Lord. But God's fatherly care eventually broke his heart as he learned about his heavenly Father's perfect love and care and the grace he can have through Jesus Christ. If we're ever to be the kind of parents that God calls us to be, we must never forget that God is the first parent. He knows and loves your kids more than you ever could. God is our heavenly Father. He never gives up his parental rights. God is the most important, relation, most important person in the relationship you will ever have between you and your child. The old cliche, two is company, but three is a crowd, does not apply in parenting. God is the necessary third party in any relationship between a parent and a child. And so next I want to talk to parents. Kids, I'll get to you a little bit later on. But parents, I want to discuss two sets of Proverbs. The first gives parents the big picture, a biblical vision of the blessings and curses of, uh, of parenting. And then the second gives uh, parents practical steps, a biblical methodology for loving discipline. So vision first. Parents, you are called to reflect the character and priorities of your heavenly Father. And as you reflect God and His ways and His character, you and your children will be blessed. But if you ignore God and you dismiss or minimize his ways, everyone pays the price. Look at Proverbs 3.33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Proverbs 14.1. A wise woman builds her home, but a foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. These Proverbs and many, many others present vivid con contrast. On the one hand, curses. On the other, blessings wickedness versus righteousness, wisdom that builds up versus folly that tears down. And the main point is that the, choice we, the choices we make have real consequences to build up or to tear down our homes, to bless or to defile our children. And the blessings and consequences are not just for us. They really impact our kids more deeply and profoundly and in more ways than we know. So let's first talk about God's blessings. These proverbs remind us that those whose family experience aligns best with God's original design, they receive just innumerable benefits and privileges, right? Increased relational stability, emotional support, peace in the home, financial security, a model for healthy intimacy, resolving conflicts, spiritual leadership. I mean, the list is just long. Now, contrast that to what 
you know, popular voices are saying that you need to check your privilege, I would say you never need to apologize for these privileges. It's counterproductive to be ashamed of the advantages that God blesses you with because you're raised in a godly family that, comparatively speaking, was well aligned to His design. Instead of apologizing, thank God for your undeserved blessings and commit to advancing them by walking in the same path of wisdom. Now, incidentally, the family blessings talked about in Proverbs transcend generations, right? There's multiple generations of blessings, and the blessings flow in two directions. Look at Proverbs 17.6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. In other words, godly and wise parents are the most important and significant blessing a child could receive. More valuable than having an excellent education, more valuable than having a big house where every kid gets their own room, more valuable than having your own toys. The primary glory of children is their fathers and their mothers. And it is a child's glory when they, when they begin to mimic the wise behavior and attitudes and actions of their parents. And people take notice of disciplined children for they know how to act in public and how to relate to others and how to work through difficulty and how to regulate their emotions. People take notice. And you want to know who takes notice first? Grandparents. Grandparent. Because Grandparents were probably the ones who were left wondering some 20 or 30 years earlier if all their efforts at consistent discipline of their own children would pay off. And sometimes the fruit of godly discipline takes decades to ripen. But when it does, that is the fruit that is sweetest to eat, and all glory goes to God. So according to Proverbs 17, 16, the blessings of a family aligned to God's plan are, multi, are a multi-generational crown and glory. This is a beautiful vision of God's blessing. But let's next look at God's curses, living under the curse, right? 333, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. Uh, 14, 1, the wise woman builds up her home, the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. Those whose family experiences are comparatively less aligned with God's design, they will suffer additional pain and hardship. Relational insecurity, emotional volatility, housing instability, a comparative lack of support. And these hardships are are suffered initially by the children through no fault of their own, through being abandoned or neglected or put in unfair situations constantly. But unfortunately, often later in life, the pain is increased, the suffering is increased as a result of reactions and decisions by the child that are not wise. They may rebel or give up, or begin to bully, or always run away from the problem, or isolate. And I don't need to tell you, you already know about the research that a younger person is when they suffer adverse life experiences, the deeper and longer lasting its damaging impact. There's a whole field of study on what's called ACEs, adult, um, I'm sorry, adverse childhood experiences. We all know those abused as children are most likely to become abuser. It is heartbreaking reality. 
But these three Proverbs, 333, 14.1, and 17.6, illustrate what time and experience prove again and again. How consistently our early life experience aligns with God's ways and God's truth makes a big difference. It really does. And if we are wise, we will build up our homes, but if we are foolish, we will tear them down. And this has been true since the beginning of humanity in the garden when Adam and Eve turned from God. And we see it illustrated throughout the rest of biblical history. So how does all this apply? It's really, it's not easy to work out the implications. But I am so thankful that Westminster is a church that's determined to do so because we are a church for every type of broken person and every type of broken family. But when a family is marked by significant brokenness, discussing God's original plan and design for family can feel painful. It can feel like rubbing salt in a wound for some. And for others who've experienced some healing, it can still feel like you're bumping up against a sensitive scar. And so to make progress, we need to maintain a posture of humility and hope. Only a humble yet still hopeful posture enables us to hold on to both grace and truth, which is absolutely necessary if we're ever going to make sense of biblical parenting. See, without grace, we won't have the courage to bear the truth about our kids or about ourselves and our own failures or our own history. And without the truth, we deceive ourselves into uh, settling for a false grace. We may fall prey to doing what the culture does of affirming folly and celebrating sin. And such false grace is a deadly mirage leading us in the exact opposite direction we want to go, leading us away from true life-given places and oases and gardens that we seek, to be transformed by the truth and grace of redemption, both in our need for redemption and in our joy at having received it and tasted of it, we must maintain a posture of humility and hope. No matter how broken you are, no matter how broken your family is, no matter how ugly your, your background is and your family history is, our Savior entered into brokenness and sin. He was a friend of sinners. Those who were most broken were drawn to Him. But only those who humbled themselves before Him and lingered in His presence were able to experience His healing power. You have to have the hope to linger through the pain, through the discomfort, through the embarrassment, through the shame, in order to let His grace, His transforming grace, sink into your life and into the life of your family you're trying to rebuild. How do you do that specifically? Well, each of us will have to turn to God and to His Word, His people, and trust His Spirit to help us work it out, and, and how to be a wise builder of our house and not a foolish one who tears it down with our own hands. And if, if you're a single parent, I don't know what this looks like. It may mean admitting your own limitations and grieving your loss while asking for help from others in the church and in the community, while at the same time trusting God's strength for you. It may not seem sufficient, but it is. And He faithfully loves you, and He will divinely protect and care for you and your kids in surprising and unexpected ways. You can have hope.
And if you're a grandparent raising a grandchild, it may mean pointing them to younger men and women in the church who can help you and help as your strength fails. No one can replace what is missing in their life, but they can, other people in the church can be used from God to bring extra care and support. If you're an adoptive parent, it will mean learning how to allow space for not just joy and sorrow, but a complicated joy and a complicated grief. And in your joy, you'll need to allow room for lament. And if you've adopted children cross-culturally or ethnically, it will mean building relationships with wise parents from that ethnic group and their kids. See, these are just some of the ways, practical ways, that the wise can build up their homes despite personal challenges and trusting God to bless the dwellings of the righteous. And dear church, let me, let me encourage you, continue to pray and support the families in this church. And if you don't know what to do, why, well, I, I told you, you can go to the nursery and volunteer. That was one thing you can do. <laughs> But another thing is just give to the Benevolence Fund so that the leaders in the church have the resources they need to help. So that's the vision for parenting uh, and for family, to take stock of the many blessings and align with God's design, as well as taking stock of the painful costs of being misaligned to God's design. And so in in wisdom, we seek to, to build up and not tear down our house. Now, let's talk about some practical steps. The first practical step in wise parenting is always aim for the heart. Always aim for the heart. Notice uh, 23.6, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Many voices in our world call out for your child's heart. We've seen the aggressive pursuit of woman folly to win the heart of the young and the naive. As Chris showed us last week, her banquet of stolen bread and water costs nothing. Lady Wisdom also pursues the young and naive, and she invites them to a richer feast of mixed wine and marinated meat. But unlike woman folly, there is an entrance fee to her banquet. You must leave behind your folly and repent of your sinful ways. Make no mistake, both wisdom and folly, righteousness and worldliness are battling for your child's heart. And woman folly always exaggerates uh, her wares and markets her goods dishonestly. She offers only stolen bread and stale water. And so we should not be surprised when she relabels pornography as sex-positive education or child abuse as medically necessary intervention. But your job is to understand the enemy and to fight for the heart of your child. Make no mistake... The dark forces of this present world are fighting for your child's heart. And the Bible clarifies three enemies of your child, the flesh, the world, and Satan. And the flesh is simply your child's own sin nature. You have it too. And the sin nature just wants what it wants and rejects God to get it. But the world is that flesh as a collective. And thus the ways of the Lord are in rebellion to the ways of God. And Satan, who's he? He's just the age-old leader of the rebellion. He cheers on the flesh and develops a game plan for worldly powers. So how do you fight for your kid's heart? Proverbs 23, 6 shows the way, right? Be clear about what you want, why you want it, and how you want to get it. What you want. You don't merely want outward conformity. You want your child's heart. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. And tell him why. Because you're my son and daughter, because I love you 
more than you know, and I want what's best for you. Remind them that you are on their team, that even though you disagree and even though you may argue, you are fighting for them, not against them. I am for what God is doing in your life. I want to partner with you. Finally, show them how. Earn their trust by living out a godly example. We all know more is caught than taught. Notice his appeal. My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. Invite your children to watch your behavior closely, to ask questions, to humbly point out contradictions between what you preach and what you practice. Give them an example of what it means to humble yourself, admit wrong, ask for forgiveness, receive forgiveness, grant forgiveness. Demonstrate for them how to work through conflict, how to reconcile with God and each other, and then move forward in love. That's the first practical step in parenting, to aim for the heart and set the example. The second step in wise parenting is don't be afraid to discipline. Your role is to be a parent, not a friend. That may come later. But until that youngster's frontal lobe is fully farmed, that part of the brain responsible for executive functioning and impulse control, sometimes your job is to be their frontal cortex for them. Look at the next uh, set of Proverbs. 1324, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him, he will not die. Discipline your son. For there is hope. Do not let your heart do not set your heart on putting him to death, nineteen eighteen. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart, twenty nine seventeen. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old he will not depart from it. Twenty two six. One of the most remarkable characteristics of woman folly throughout the Proverbs is that she never disciplines. She takes comfort and pleasure, which is a good thing, but makes it the ultimate thing, makes it an idol. Uh, she does this as a mother by spoiling her children. She does this as a, as a paramour when she seduces, and she does it as a wife when she cheats whenever she wants. To her, discipline is transgression. Boundaries are offensive. Pain is bad. Ironically, in wrongly assuming that discipline is deadly, she not only spoils those under her spell. She ultimately ruins them. Lady Wisdom, on the other hand, she's not afraid of pain and suffering, nor is she afraid to leverage natural consequences to drive home lessons that her children need to learn. She wants those under her charge to learn the first time so that they don't have to amplify their own pain. And she's not afraid to use all of the tools in the discipline toolbox. Now, if I don't stop and address some questions here uh, that some of you have in your minds, you'll likely begin to tune out. Uh, I just read Proverbs 13, 24, which says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Uh, Those are remarkable words. And after I read that, people often are saying, are you saying that I not only need to hit my kids, but if I don't, I'm a bad parent? And... uh, It's usually followed up with some kind of snarky comment, this is why Christians get such a bad rep. And that is a reasonable objection, but let me clarify what the Proverbs are saying and what they're not. The Bible never, let me be clear, the Bible never justifies violence against children, but it commends loving discipline, not abuse. 
Unfortunately, in our falling world, too many have used this verse to justify beating on their kids in anger. And if that's what you're doing in your home, you need to stop immediately. And if that's what was done in your home growing up, that does not reflect God's ways. That said, the Proverbs commend corporal punishment as one of the many tools in the parenting toolbox. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Now, let me say up front that those who confuse godly spanking with violence don't understand what is being commended here. Godly spanking is controlled. It's compassionate. It's never done in anger. There's always restoration and reconciliation afterwards. And it seems, though, That in Solomon's day, even in Solomon's day and today, there were some very sensitive parents who just hate it, just could not think of bringing pain into their children's life. And, you know, some of us, we really do have the gift of mercy, and that is a beautiful thing. But like anything else, a strength becomes a weakness when we over-rely on it. Sometimes the best way to crack a hard heart is through sensitivity and soft words, but other times the child is simply scoffing and the rod of discipline is needed to break through a hard heart. Now notice the goal of such discipline is always the heart. The goal is the heart, not the harm. This is what Proverbs 19.18 affirms, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart in putting him to death. Now, the only reason why you would physically discipline or bring physical pain into anyone's life is to save them from a greater, more destructive pain. That's true medically. Doctors bring pain, the pain of surgery, cutting deeply to remove the greater pain of disease. And likewise, spanking brings pain into a child's life in order to save them from greater pain. And it should be applied carefully like a surgeon's knife or a counselor's rebuke. But when applied rightly, it is a powerful tool of healing and protection. And my wife and I have found that with young children, there is a secret button, and it's right here on the buttocks, um, and it's wired straight to the heart. And when you hit that button in the right way at the right time, it works amazingly at getting attention from stubborn children and rescuing them from the destructive path and the destructive choices they're making. Now, some of you are still skeptical. You're thinking, yeah, but this is poetry. Can't we just use a metaphorical rod of discipline? You know, timeouts, grounding, no dessert, rather than the physical rod of... Fair enough. Maybe you should. I don't know the particulars of the situation you're referring to. But for adult children that were appropriately and carefully disciplined with a physical rod of discipline as young children like I was, I'll confess, I never thought my parents were abusers. When I got spanked, I knew I had it coming. Or for parents who, you know, they've they've seen uh, on first hand the benefits of corporal punishment in producing joyful, confident, confident, and fearless children when done the right way. And so the cynical objection that you just can't use, you know, the physical rod, it's got to be a metaphorical rod by giving them a timeout or redirecting their attention. With all due respect, that cynical question or objection sounds similar to saying, you know, can't you just build a house with hand tools? And yes, you can, but why not use power tools? They can get the work done with less strain and sweat And I'm not saying you should always use power tools or only use power tools, 
but it's equally foolish to never use them. And all metaphors break down if we push this one too far. But this one holds well on a number of levels. Obviously, don't use a power tool if you haven't been trained and you don't have self-discipline. Don't use it uh, if you're not mature. Power tools also are, are to be used at the beginning of a building project. But during the later stages, you use finishing tools. Totally different tools. But any tool, and here's my point, any tool of discipline, when used incorrectly, is dangerous. Believe me, I've worked with college students. I know the abuse that comes from from just neglect, from the silent treatment, right? From all the emotional games that parents can play with their children. An abuser can do as much damage with a hand saw as with a circular saw. The problem isn't the tool. The problem is how the person using it wields it. So the promise to parents who faithfully discipline their kids, it's remarkable. Discipline your son, verse 29, 17, and he'll give you rest. He'll give you the delight of your heart. 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and he will not depart from it. And these words are meant to give great encouragement, especially when you're in the middle of the battle. But most commentators point out that 22, 6, this train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. This provides the general rule not the exception. It's the normal way of things, but it's not a law. It doesn't always work that way. In other words, remember, your children are not robots. They're independent moral agents responsible for their own choices. So that's what most commentators say. Remember, this is a proverb, not a law. However, there is an important thing to know that some commentators point to the difficulty of translating this proverb, for it could read, train up a child in the way he should go, and it, the training, will not depart from him. Meaning that the word of God you plant it will continue to abide in the heart of every person. And as much as that backslidden child may try to convince you that he or she has cast off God and his ways and his claims upon their life, the truth planted in their heart when they were children will continue to haunt him. In other words, he's not called the Holy Ghost for no reason. So however you interpret the proverb, the main point is, parents, never sell yourself short. You have inescapable influence in the lives of your kids. God has given parents a huge role and responsibility. So God's role, parents' role, and quickly, kids, (laughs) I didn't forget you. Kids, first, I want to talk about what you can do and then what you can look for. First, what to do. Proverbs 6, 20 to 23, My son, keep your father's commandments. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will teach you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the light a teaching. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. See, God gave moms and dads as authority figures over your life. And you are responsible and called to submit to their authority by remembering what they teach you and then obeying. And you got that? An important word there is remembering. Remembering. If we take the Proverbs seriously, comments like, well, why'd you do that? I don't know. Well, what were you thinking? Well, I forgot you said not to, right? I forgot and I don't know They're not acceptable excuses over time. You need to choose to remember. Notice how active you as a child are expected to be. Keep your father's commandment. 
forsake not your mother's teaching, right? Don't forget. Choose to remember. Bind them on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Actively listen. Don't just selectively listen. And notice the writer clarifies why you need to actively listen to mom and dad in these verses. Notice it will help you in more ways than you anticipate. It helps you whether you're walking, lying down at the end of the day, or just waking up to face a new day. Wisdom for mom and dad will lead you, watch over you, and talk to you. Verse 23, their teaching will be like a light in the dark, and they will show you the path to life. Now, you know and I know that your mom and dad don't know everything, and they don't understand everything you are going through. They probably didn't have to deal with social media like you do, or online pornography, or cyberbullying, but they do understand sexual desire. That's why you're here. They understand the desire to belong. They understand the desire to be liked, to be understood, to be successful, but they also have lived enough life to know what it's like to have heartbreak and to be overlooked and to walk through failure. And they really understand the lures of the flesh and the world and Satan. And they've made mistakes. Your parents have made mistakes. And on the one hand, they want to spare you from unnecessary pain by repeating the same mistakes they made. And on the other hand, they want you to grow from the pain they cannot spare you from. And every Christian parent wants you to discover more of God's faithfulness and His goodness and His beauty and that Jesus is enough for you, that He is better than anything else, and you need to commit to Him in all your ways. So kids, in summary, if you want to know what to do, actively listen to mom and dad. Keep their commands. Forsake not their teachings. Bind them on your heart. Tie them around your neck. And obey them as best you can. And we'll help you do that. Second, what to look for. If you want to be successful as an adult, you need to seek to bless mom and dad now. Success as an adult biblically means becoming what God calls you to be. It's not just being a responsible contributor to society. Success in adulthood, as Proverbs defines it, uh, Dr. Walker put it right at the top of, uh, of the paper where all the, all the verses are, are, are outlined on page four. Wisdom is an attentiveness to God's word, God's character, God's created order in order to live life knowledgeably and well as God intended it to be lived. That is what success as an adult live, is. Now, kids, what should you look for to know whether or not you're on the right path toward this biblical definition of success in adulthood? And look at this last verse, 10.1. A wise son makes glad his father, but a foolish son sorrow to his mother. Now, at first glance, this looks like it's talking all about how your parents feel. It's centrally focused on their happiness or their sadness. But it's not actually about that. Mom and dad's feelings are not the central issue. Mom and dad's feelings are a reaction to the central issue. Put it like this. Their reaction to your attitudes, your behavior, your words is like a thermometer, right? It measures the temperature that you're in the room, that you're giving off. But your actions and behaviors toward them are the thermostat that sets the temperature. Your behaviors, wise or foolish, set a temperature to which mom and dad notice and reflect and react. 
And godly parents react as they do because they love their kids. They, they warn and they correct because they want you to know, whoa, the temperature's too high here. You're burning me. But they also grieve folly because they know the path that a foolish heart takes people. And they will reward and celebrate wise decisions because they know the blessings of walking in God's ways. And they really, kids, really, your parents want what's best for you. So how does this apply? Let mom and dad be your guide. Watch for how they respond. Are they happy about what you're doing? Are they sorrowful and grieving? Let that be a compass directing you. Now, obviously, their compass isn't reliable like the Bible, and so you need to compare it to God's Word. But God has put you, God has put parents in your life to reflect things that you may not want to see and that are probably more accurate than you want to admit. So there we have it. The three is company, the role of God, the role of parents, and the role of children. God never gives up his parental rights. He's always caring for us. We never outgrow his fatherly love. And parents, there's great wisdom as you align yourself to his word and as you build your house up in wisdom. And there's great consequences as you ignore and marginalize his word. It will tear down your own house. And children... Remember what mom and dad say. They have your best interests in mind. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our perfectly heavenly father who never surrenders his parental rights. We recognize the unique role and responsibility that you give to parents. What a high calling. Parents cannot do it well without you. Thank you for parenting all of us as we parent our children. Help us to reflect you by aiming for the heart and disciplining our children in love and truth and wisdom. And God, we also recognize the unique role and blessing of being a child, and we cannot do that well without you. Help us to honor our earthly parents as unto the Lord by listening carefully to their wise counsel and to seek to bless them and not bring them sorrow and grief through stubbornness and folly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.